Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We want to thank our witnesses for being here today for the second in a series of hearings on Russia. This committee is attempting to get a clearer sense of the administration's overall posture on Russia. And again, we thank you both for being here. We have outstanding witnesses today. We'd like to understand what was agreed to when the leaders of our two countries sat down in Helsinki. Were there discussions regarding current or future arms control agreements? What other promises or assurances were made? To date, we have received no real readout, even in a classified setting of this meeting. We'd like to understand the administration's assessment of the threat posed by Russia to us to our allies and to other countries and institutions around the world. Finally, we need a better understanding of how Russia sanctions this committee wrote last year and the Senate passed by a vote of 98 to 2 despite strong objections from the White House are being implemented. Russia has annexed Crimea, occupied parts of Georgia, interfered with elections, including our own, violated the INF Treaty, remains in violation, used chemical weapons to poison individuals in the United Kingdom, and even purportedly hacked U.S. utilities. These offenses are bad enough, but they leave us wondering, what's next? What does the administration expect that they will next do? The past teaches us that even worse things may lay just over the horizon if we fail to push back now and make clear to President Putin that our nation is united from the very top to the bottom and standing against his destabilizing behavior, both in policy and in public posture. It is my hope that today you will reassure the members of this committee that our executive branch is doing all in its power to convince the Russians not to continue testing our resolve. We thank you both again for your service to our country, for being here today before this committee, and we look forward to your testimony. And with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, my friend Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your, your opening statement. I, I join you in, your, in your, your words and your concerns. And for convening this hearing, which I hope is part of a series of hearings on U.S. policy towards the Russian Federation. And I hope we can get clarity into our policy and effectively pursue oversight and legislation. More than a month after President Trump's Helsinki meeting with President Putin, we remain in the dark about what the two leaders discussed. We continue to hear more information, accurate or not, from the Russian government than from our own. It's not only embarrassing, but I believe its lack of transparency has implications for our national security. I'm not convinced that those who need to know in our own executive branch have a full understanding of what happened. After more than three hours with Secretary Pompeo a few weeks ago, this committee has little more insight than we did before the hearing. Since the administration has failed to answer congressional requests or provide any information, I am today formally requesting the department to provide all classified and unclassified cable traffic related to the Helsinki meeting, memorandums, and policy directives. I won't spend time today running through Russia's ongoing transgressions, I think President Trump's cabinet, Secretary Mattis, Director Coates, Secretary Nielsen, and others have warned that Russia continues to undermine our democracy. Russia uses chemical weapons to attack its opponents abroad. It invades its neighbors and illegally annexes territory. Assad's murderous regime and Iranian proxy fighters inching closer towards Israel rely on the Kremlin. And today, we learn from Microsoft that Russian hackers continue 
their attempts to attack the United States Senate and venerable American think tanks and NGOs. I have been disappointed by the calls by some on the other side of the aisle to ignore these threats and seek accommodation with Moscow. Sending mixed signals to the Kremlin and its allies only serves to undermine our pressure track and sanctions regime. I do not currently see the value in meeting with sanctioned members of the Russian Duma. They are sanctioned because of their support for the illegal annexation of Crimea, and they should remain on our sanctions list until Crimea's return to Ukraine. I myself am sanctioned by the Russian government for my authorship of the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, and I'd be happy to meet with the Duma when each of the goals of that law are accomplished. Till then, they can stay in Moscow. I'd like to use this hearing to look forward. The administration often points to its record while ignoring the president's damaging rhetoric on Russia policy. With that said, I was pleased that Secretary Pompeo committed to work with us on new sanctions, as outlined in my bill with Senator Graham and many others on this committee. Today, I'd like to hear in detail specific provisions of the Defending American Security from Kremlin Aggression Act of 2018 that you'd commit to working towards. I want your views on how these measures could impact the Kremlin's decision-making calculus and how the sanctions the bill imposes would impact the intended targets. The bill recognizes that our efforts to date have been insufficient. It includes tough measures which, would rec which we recognize have implications for U.S. companies and our allies. However, do we really believe it is acceptable or in our national interest for U.S. companies or those of our allies to be doing business in Russia, particularly supporting the very sectors that have aided and abated Kremlin's aggression and interference? It's utterly ridiculous that President Trump would publicly champion a U.S.-Russia business council rather than condemn the Kremlin's outright aggressions. Second, I want to hear how you would support provisions to deepen cooperation with Europe on Russia sanctions implementation. Our sanctions regime is only as effective as our ability to convince Europe to increase the pressure. Third, I continue to believe that our government is not properly constituted to address the hybrid threat posed by Russia. Our bill would establish a national fusion center to address malign influence and hybrid threats and also calls for the establishment of a sanctions coordinator office within the Senate. I look forward to your thoughts on how we can structure our national security institutions to maximize our ability to address complex threats. Fourth, I'd like to hear about efforts to implement the current CATSA sanctions law. The administration has argued that mandatory new provisions of CATSA have not been invoked because it is easier to use established executive order authorities. I'd like to hear a clear reasoning for this and assurances that the clear intent of Congress is being met because as of now, I'm not convinced. Specifically, I'm interested in sections 225, 226, 227, 228, 233, and 234. Um, I strongly oppose the waiver provision in NDA, which allows the administration under certain circumstances to waive sanctions in section 231 on the defense and intelligence sector. In response, I inserted a strong reporting requirement demanding the State Department be more forthcoming and transparent on how it's implementing Section 231. And I remain concerned that the conferees effectively gutted this important provision, so I hope the State can convince me otherwise. Finally, I want to end with a note of thanks. I do understand that there are many within our government who are dedicated to a more assertive approach with respect to Russia that is clear-eyed and well-intentioned. And at the risk of making their jobs more difficult, I'd say that the individuals before us today fall into that category. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for uh, the, uh, calling the hearing and to our witnesses for appearing. Well, thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our first witness is 
Wes Mitchell, Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Department of State. Again, we thank you for being here and appreciate what you do for our country. Our second witness is Mr. Marshall Billingsley, Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing, U.S. Department of Treasury. We thank you for the same. Um, we want to. We appreciate the fact you're sharing your thoughts and viewpoints with us today, Mr. Billingsley. Uh, for the committee's benefit, I understand you have returned early from travel to be here today. We thank you for that. We also originally had Assistant Secretary Chris Ford scheduled for this hearing, but we were asked that he be available to testify before the Senate Banking Committee. I think you know we have a simultaneous hearing happening. Um, since we had these two outstanding witnesses, we relented and allowed uh, Chris to go over to the banking committee. So that testimony will be taking place there. He likely will be before us again in the future uh, to talk about some other issues that he's responsible for. So again, we thank you. Uh, you know the order here. If you could summarize your comments in about five minutes, any written materials you have without, uh, with unanimous consent will be entered into the record. And with that, uh, Mr. Mitchell, if you begin, we'd appreciate it. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, thank you for inviting me to testify today. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I want to start with a piece of welcome news that's unrelated to this uh, morning's testimony. Uh, yesterday, August 20th, the U.S. government removed to Germany Yaakov Pali, a former Nazi camp guard at the notorious Travniki slave labor camp for Jews in Nazi-occupied Poland. While this process took far longer than we wanted, the removal of this individual can bring some comfort to Holocaust survivors and others who suffered at the hands of those like Polly, who did the cruel bidding of the inhuman Nazi regime. I will use my prepared comments uh, today to outline in brief form the overarching strategy of the United States towards the Russian Federation. The foundation for this strategy is provided by three documents as directed and approved by the President, the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Strategy, and the Russia Integrated Strategy. The starting point of the national security strategy is the recognition that America has entered a period of big power competition and that past U.S. policies have neither sufficiently grasped the scope of this emerging trend nor adequately equipped our nation to succeed in it. The central aim of the administration's foreign policy is to prepare our nation to confront this challenge by systematically strengthening the military, economic, and political fundaments of American power. Our Russia policy proceeds from the recognition that to be effective, U.S. diplomacy must be backed by military power that is second to none and fully integrated with our allies and all of our instruments of power. To that end, we have reversed years of cuts to the defense budget, begun the process of recapitalizing the U.S. nuclear arsenal, requested close to $11 billion for the European Deterrence Initiative, and worked with, within NATO to bring about more than $40 billion in new European defense spending. At the NATO summit, we established two new NATO commands, including one here in the United States, new counter-hybrid threat response teams, and major multi-year initiatives to bolster the, the mobility, readiness, and capability of the alliance. In tandem, we have worked to degrade Vladimir Putin's ability to conduct aggression by imposing costs on the Russian state and the oligarchy that sustains it. Building on Secretary Pompeo's testimony, I am submitting for the record a list of actions this administration has taken. These include, to date, 217 individuals and entities sanctioned, six diplomatic and consular facilities closed, and 60 spies removed from American soil. Our actions are having an impact. Research by the State Department's Office of Chief Economist shows that, on average, sanctioned Russian firms see their operating revenue fall by a quarter, their total asset valuation fall by half, and they are forced to fire a third of their employees. 
Following the announcement of sanctions in April, in April the Russian company Rusol lost about 50% of its market value. In the five days following our August 8th announcement of Chemical and Biological Weapons Act sanctions, the ruble depreciated to its lowest level against the dollar in two years. Even as we have imposed unprecedented penalties for Russian aggression, we've been clear that the door to dialogue is open should Putin choose to take credible steps towards a constructive path. In Syria, we created de-escalation channels to avoid collisions between our forces. In Ukraine, we have maintained an effort under Ambassador Kurt Volker to provide the means by which Russia can live up to its commitments under the Minsk agreements. But in all of these areas, it is up to Russia, not America, to take the next step. We've placed particular emphasis on bolstering the lines of the states of frontline Europe. In Ukraine and Georgia, we lifted restrictions on the acquisition of defensive weapons. In the Balkans, we have played a hands-on role in resolving the Greece-Macedonia name dispute and engaging with Serbia and Kosovo to propel the EU-led dialogue. From the Caucasus to Central Europe, we are promoting energy diversification, fighting corruption, and competing for hearts and minds. Our strategy is animated by the realization that the threat from Russia has evolved beyond being simply an external or military one. It includes influence operations in, uh, orchestrated by the Kremlin in the very heart of the Western world. These activities are extensively resourced and directed from the highest levels of the Russian state. It's important to state clearly what these campaigns are and are not about. What they're not about is a particular attachment to U.S. domestic political causes. They're not about right or left, not about American political philosophy. As the recent Facebook purges reveal, the Russian state has promoted fringe voices on the political left and right, including groups who advocate violence, the storming of federal buildings, and the overthrow of the U.S. government. Russia foments and funds controversial causes, and then foments and funds the causes opposed to those causes. Putin's thesis is that the American Constitution is an experiment that will fail if it is challenged in the right way from within. Putin wants to break apart the American Republic, not by influencing an election or two, but by systematically inflaming the fault lines within our society. Accepting this fact is absolutely essential for developing a long-term response to the problem. The most dangerous thing in the world we could do is politicize the challenge, which in itself would be a gift to Putin. What Russian efforts are about is geopolitics, the Putinist system's permanent and self-justifying struggle for international dominance. As stated by a handbook of the Russian armed forces, the goal is to, quote, carry out mass psychological campaigns against the population of a state in order to destabilize society and the government and force that state to make decisions in the interests of its opponents. Doing so involves an evolved toolkit of subversive statecraft, first employed by the Bolshevik and later the Soviet state, upgraded for the digital age. The State Department takes this threat very seriously. Countering it in both overt and covert form is among the highest priorities of the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. As a co-chair of the Russian Influence Group, I work with General Scaparotti to bring the combined resources of EUR and UCOM to bear against this problem. Under EUR leadership, all 49 U.S. missions located in Europe and Eurasia are required to develop, coordinate, and execute tailored action plans for rebuffing Russian influence operations in their host countries. Within the Bureau, we recruited one of the architects of the Global Engagement Center legislation from the staff of a member of this committee. We formed a new position, the Senior Advisor for Russian Malign Activities and Trends, or SARMOT, to develop cross-regional strategies across offices. EUR created a dedicated team to take the offensive in publicly exposing Russian malign activities, which since January of this year has called out the Kremlin on 112 occasions. We are now working with our ally, U the UK, to form an international coalition for coordinating efforts 
in this field and have requested over $380 million in security and economic assistance accounts in the President's 2019 budget. We recognize that Congress has an important role to play in providing the tools and resources needed to deal effectively with the Russian problem set. As Secretary Pompeo made clear in his recent testimony, we're committed to working with all of you to make headway against this problem and align our efforts in support of the President's Russia strategy. Mr. Chairman, thank you again for inviting me today. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Secretary Billingsley. Chairman Corker, <clears throat> Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, first of all, it's great to be back. I got my start in Washington sitting on the bench back there uh, uh, some 20-odd years ago, and it's fantastic to appear before this committee. And thank you for the opportunity. At the outset, I will say that those of us in the Treasury Department share the views that you and the ranking member and many in the Senate have expressed regarding the significant and continuing national security threat posed to the United States by the Russian Federation. Continuing occupation of Crimea, paramilitary operations in Ukraine, human rights abuses, malicious cyber attacks on U.S. and allied infrastructure and companies, illicit procurement of restricted U.S. technologies, violation of crucial arms control treaties, support to the Assad regime's barbarism, assassination of dissidents and defectors, including the unconscionable use of the Novichok nerve agent in London, in the United Kingdom, and ongoing efforts to interfere in our sacrosanct election processes and those of our allies are just some of the unacceptable behaviors of the Putin regime. Countering Russian aggression is a top priority for the Treasury Department, and consequently the net effect of our actions over the past year and a half is an unprecedented level of financial pressure mounted against the Kremlin, its oligarch proxies, and key sectors of the Russian economy. To date, this administration has applied sanctions on 223 Russia-related entities and individuals ranging from Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Internet Research Agency's social media troll farms to FSB and GRU cyber actors to Russia's state-owned defense conglomerate, Rosovaron Export, which has been supplying billions of dollars worth of weaponry to the Assad regime. Additionally, Treasury has issued findings pursuant to the Patriot Act to Section 311 against a major Latvian bank that was laundering money for illicit activities based out of Russia. And we have engaged globally with partner nations to apply their anti-money laundering regimes to target financial flows directly associated with both Russian organized crime and the malign behavior of the Kremlin. Russian aggression is ongoing, but the Treasury Department has demonstrated to Putin and his inner circle that their behaviors will not be tolerated and they will incur significant costs. On April 6, 2018, we sanctioned seven Russian oligarchs who are part of the innermost circle, along with 12 companies that they own or control. This included Oleg Deripaska and Viktor Vexelberg, as well as Putin's son-in-law, Kirill Shomalov. Unlike the previous administration, which shied away from targeting these actors, we've gone after the big fish. Rusal, controlled by Deripaska, is the second largest producer of aluminum and supplier of aluminum in the world. As a result of sanctions, Deripaska's estimated net worth, his personal net worth, has dropped by more than half. The share price of the holding company that controls Rusal was cut, likewise, by more than half on the London Stock Exchange on the day we took our actions. Similarly, Victor Vexelberg's personal net worth has dropped by an estimated $3 billion, and his company has now been forced to divest from ventures in Switzerland and Italy. When Treasury acted, Moscow-traded stocks experienced their biggest plunge in years, and the ruble slid to its weakest position since 2016, and it still has not recovered from that. In all, our measures are taking a direct toll on the wealth of the elites who serve as Kremlin proxies and on the Russian economy. 
Their growth is nearly stagnant. Foreign direct investment is down. There is limited willingness to invest further in their oil and gas sector, which is fundamental to their economy. The cost of borrowing for the Russian government is way up. And the central bank is increasingly forced to step in and prop up Russian financial institutions. Nor will we cease to ease up. We will not ease up for as long as this malign behavior persists. As an example, over the past two weeks, we've imposed additional costs on Russian entities. Namely, we sanctioned a Russian bank, which has facilitated millions of dollars in transactions for North Korea. And we designated a major Russian port operator, maritime port operator, for providing services to North Korean flagged vessels and helping to evade sanctions. This morning, about 30 minutes ago, we took further measures. We are designating two Russia shipping, Russia-based shipping companies who have been conducting ship-to-ship transfers of oil in circumvention of the UN Security Council resolutions, and we're blocking six Russian flagged vessels. Second, as part of our ongoing effort to combat Russian cyber activities, we are designating two more individuals and two additional companies for their ongoing support to the Russian FSB for cyber behavior. So I think it is clear that the Treasury has been given a straightforward mandate to combat Russian aggression at every turn, and I assure the committee that we will continue to do so. Mr. Chairman, I appreciate the opportunity to testify before this committee and to answer additional questions on this matter, which I think we all agree is of the utmost importance to our national security. With your permission, I ask that my longer prepared remarks, together with a copy of the Katsa Section 243 report on Russian illicit financial behavior, be submitted for the record. And again, I look forward to answering questions. Thank you, Chairman. Without objection, I'm going to ask just a couple of questions and then reserve the rest of my time. Um, I think that the vast majority of this committee, in listening to the testimony of the two of you, would say that this was a very fact-based, realistic view of what is happening, and presented by two very sober individuals um, who understand Russia and their actions to be as they are. I would ask the question, is your testimony today representative of the mainstream of the administration from top to bottom? Yes, Senator, I believe it is. It's also, it also reflects the policy that's been directed by the President. Yeah. Senator, I agree with that, Chairman. So we obviously are putting tough measures in place, and I know many will advocate for more. We're seeing no behavior change, is that correct? I mean, they're still doing the same things that they've been doing for years. We, have we seen any behavior change as a result of what it is we're doing? I would not uh, want to characterize that. Uh, I, in a classified setting, I think the intelligence community would be better uh, positioned. But what I would say is that by the net weight of our actions and sanctions in particular, I think we are forcing the Russians and specifically Putin to reconsider his preferred strategy. The combined effect of our sanctions, together, by the way, with our larger defense establishment, is a cost imposition strategy. And I think it's important to remember that cost imposition is what won the Cold War. So I would argue that, um, I would argue very clearly, by increasing the costs in these sectors for the Russian economy and state, but also forcing them to up their game in developing military technological advances to keep pace with the United States in both conventional and nuclear arms, I think we're absolutely having an impact on, on uh, Vladimir Putin's preferred strategy. But, and, and again, I'm not being critical of, of what it is you're doing. It just seems to me, and I know that there's discussions, the reason I'm asking these questions, there are discussions about what we might do to prevent further 
involvements in our elections, which look like there's no way to stop involvement in our elections. We see it happening today. We see it happening with fringe groups. Um, is there something that's being discussed within the administration uh, that you believe may have even greater impact than what we're doing that might possibly change their behavior, which is the point of all of this? Uh, Chairman, I, so we're constantly evaluating additional deployment of additional pressure tactics and, and sanctions, and there are active discussions underway on, on those matters. I, I wouldn't want to telegraph those at this stage because if, if we do act, we want it to have maximum financial impact. What I would offer is had we not been applying the kind of massive pressure we are applying on, on the regime, uh, their behavior would be even further off the charts. So we are at least circumscribing uh, their freedom to act uh, and, their, and, and the amount of resources they have on hand to counter us and to, and to serve as a spoiler, as they are attempting to do in so many cases across the globe, whether we're talking about propping up Maduro in Venezuela on the one hand, what they're doing with the Iranians and, and weapons trade there, or Assad. So we are forcing them to make some pretty tough resource changes. Likewise, we do see clear indications that a number of the oligarchs who thought they would just simply get bailed out by the regime for the, for the hit that they've taken have in fact not been made whole. And that's perhaps due to the fact that the regime itself is struggling for the kind of resources that they would need to do that. I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. And uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I would like to take up the Secretary's suggestion that maybe we should have a classified briefing on the impact of sanctions and behavioral change. I think that would be instructive for the committee. I know we had one in banking, and numbers of us attended that, and uh, and I think they, just for what it's worth, generally speaking, I don't think it's classified, said there hadn't been any behavior change, but but maybe we should have that for this committee also, but go ahead. So, uh, Mr. Secretary, I think that uh, uh, that even listening to your response to the Chairman's questions, I think we could generally agree, however, that despite our best efforts, both Congress's intentions to the laws that it has passed, the administration's enforcement of elements of that, that Russia has continues to march on, though, uh, both in destabilizing our democracy, other Western democracies, uh, continues to uh, have a frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine, continues to occupy Crimea, uh, is engaged actively in Syria in a way that uh, I think undermines our national interests. So uh, is, that, is that a fair statement? I think that is a fair statement, and I would just add to it what Director Coates said, the assessment of the intelligence community, that uh, there is a, a pattern of a campaign and pattern of pervasive influence. It's not at 2016 levels, and the administration is responding that with a, to that with a clear-eyed so, strategy. So if that is the, if we're agreed that it has not, uh, at least as it relates to all those things, changed its course of conduct, do uh, you support stronger sanctions on the Russian energy and banking sectors? I support a continuation of the administration's current approach, which is to use the sanction authorities that we have. And I think we have a good track record to show for that. If you had the ability to have stronger sanctions on Russia's energy and banking sectors, would you welcome it? We make full review and use of all of the authorities at our disposal and are always assessing for new targets. Uh, we had the Secretary of State here, and uh, who is your boss, and he actually said that he welcomed, uh, as a result of my questioning, he welcomed, uh, and we didn't specify which one, but he welcomed a new round of sanctions as it relates towards Russia. I assume that you're in agreement with him. 
I am. As I said, I would continue using the authorities that we have. I believe that we've got excellent authorities, and uh, we always use the, cool, the tools that Congress gives us. What I would say from the executive branch perspective and for effective diplomacy is we need discretion with those sanctions. So sanctions without discretion, in my mind, is the antithesis of strategy. We have to have the flexibility to use them in a manner that reflects diplomatic realities, and I think we've done a good job of that. I, I get concerned when I have seen both this and previous administrations use waiver authority in a way that is far beyond discretion, undermines the intention of Congress, so we may have a different point of view as exactly how much discretion you end up having. Uh, do you support the establishment of a sanctions coordination office at the State Department? I would re reserve opinion on that matter. I think we're looking internally at how best to continue coordinating sanctions in the days ahead. I think we've, we've done a we've good We've heard job a lot of, of complaints from European governments about the lack of senior level coordination on sanctions. I, I'd like to commend it to your attention as well as the secretaries. Let me ask you both, do you support the establishment of a national fusion center to coordinate policy against malign actors across or the whole of government? I think there is something to the idea of a mechanism for increasing coordination within government. It's a problem that has a lot of different aspects. There's a cyber and technical aspect. There's a diplomatic and messaging aspect. There's an informational aspect. My caveat would be, I think it's important to, to go about this in a way that does not get in the swim lane of current lines of effort, uh, which I, I would argue are doing a good job. Uh, so I, I think our team is preparing some structured feedback on the legislation that we've, uh, the ideas that we've seen in the bill. We, we would look forward to that. Let me ask you this. Uh, is it still the policy of the United States to not recognize the illegal annexation and occupation of Crimea? Indeed. Uh, I, I appreciate you saying that because then I see the president go ahead and veto elements or uh, say that uh, the elements of the uh, National Defense Authorization Bill uh, where the president rejected Senate-approved language of non-recognition of the illegal annexation and occupation of Crimea. And that, that's worrisome for some reason. I don't know why you would do that when it is the policy, the stated policy of the administration. Also, the Secretary of State has said that. And then you get a different message uh, sent by the president. Let me ask you one last question. Uh, under the Chemical Biological Weapons Act, the administration imposed sanctions on North Korea for using chemical weapons against one of its own citizens, killing the brother of Kim Jong-un. The administration also designated North Korea a state sponsor of terror following that attack. Earlier this month, the administration sanctioned the Russian Federation under the CBW Act for using chemical weapons against one of its own citizens, a former spy, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter. You've not, however, designated the Russian Federation to be a state sponsor of terrorism. Why not? What's the substantive difference between these two situations? Let me respond to the first part of what you've said, uh, Senator. I think the administration has been crystal clear on Crimea. I see no daylight here. I would refer you to the president's comments in the interview yesterday when he said very clearly that every time he discusses uh, Ukraine, he, t he talks about uh, Crimea. I think the Crimea declaration speaks for itself, and we've been very strong in that regard. On the matter of designation of state sponsors, I don't know why you reject the provision of the NDAA. It's just a it's just a codification of a view. I don't I don't quite get it. It creates confusion in the world. But go ahead. Second part of my question. On the on the second part of your question with regard to a state sponsor of terrorism, uh, I think uh, I don't want to get ahead of process. I think this is something that's always important to keep in our pocket. I think we're looking very carefully, and sober-mindedly at Russian behavior in all regards. And CBW sanctions speak for themselves. Depending on how the Russians now respond, there could be a follow-on to that uh, as it, uh, per, per the law. 
so I would just say we reserve to ourselves all options with regard to Russian behavior. I just would say there's no differentiation between what happened in North Korea and the actions the administration took, which I applaud, and the Russian Federation. And there is no reason that we shouldn't employ all the uses that we have because we need to deter the Russian Federation from undermining our elections and continuing to violate the international order. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And let me start by reiterating what uh, the Chair and Ranking Member both said about both of you. I'm glad you're there. And uh, I thought that you gave us a, a sober but very thoughtful and um, fact-based presentation today. Uh, my questions to you are really about why, given all the things we are doing, including sanctions, are we not making better progress? Um, let me start by saying I appreciate that a couple weeks ago the Secretary was able to make clear the findings of the investigation into the Russian involvement in the attempted assassination in uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter. And um, I think that's the sort of thing where, you know, we need to be frank and be clear-eyed and hold Russia accountable. And uh, I appreciate the fact that that triggered some of the sanctions we've talked about today. Um, but there's so much more. We talked about what's going on in the eastern border of Ukraine. Uh, the question was just raised as to how we continue to feel about Crimea. Um, you talked about espionage, cyber attacks, disinformation, propaganda campaigns. You talked about uh, the active uh, Russian evasion of the North Korean sanctions, um, the influence operations that Facebook recently talked about uh, does foment destabilization. It's not about right or left politics. And I think you make the good point that when we break this down on a partisan basis here in this body and in this country, that only comes to um, help Russia, not us. And I hope that we in, in this committee have been able to avoid that um, and will continue to. Today, Microsoft announced that it thwarted Russian-backed uh, cyber attacks as an example on the, uh, uh, the IRI, um, the International Republican Institute, and also on the Hudson Institution. Uh, so this is ongoing, even as we talk here today. I think sanctions uh, are necessary. Uh, you talked about how firms that are sanctioned are impacted, including you said uh, on average a firm would lose one-third of its employees if it was sanctioned. The ruble has been devalued. But it's obviously not working um, the way we would like it to. I'm not saying it doesn't have impact. And again, I think it's necessary. So my question to you really is, what would be more effective? What either additional sanction pressures or non-sanction pressures do you think would be most effective in, in countering um, what is going on? And specifically, I'd like you, uh, Secretary Mitchell, to talk a little bit about the Global Engagement Center. There was talk about a new fusion center. I'm not necessarily against that, but we just set up this Global Engagement Center. Senator Murphy and I spent a lot of time on legislation over the years working on this. The, the idea there was to, at least with regard to pushback on the disinformation and propaganda, be able on an interagency basis to be able to have better coordination and be more effective in, in uh, pushing back. We have, frankly, much less resources than the uh, uh, the Russians use uh, every day here in Washington, D.C. even. But could you talk a little about that or other ways we could deal with what is obviously uh, a continuing problem with Russia? Thank you for those questions, Senator. Um, let me just respond in brief to the, the three things you've asked. On the, on the first part, um, I'm not sure I would characterize 
the, the uh, efforts that we've made in quite the way that you have in terms of impact. I think the chilling effect on the Russian economy and certainly key sectors has been significant and measurable. Uh, since 2013, foreign direct investment in Russia has fallen by 80 percent, which is a pretty stunning number. Um, you know, we're, at this point, we're looking at an impact through the chilling effect of use of 231 from CATSA of 8 to $10 billion in, in uh, foreclosed uh, arms uh, deals. I think your broader point on uh, uh, Putin and his view of the United States uh, not having a, a partisan axe to grind is uh, apt. Uh, I don't think that Putin is a student of Jefferson or Adams. I think he's a student of Haushofer. I think it's about geopolitics. I think Microsoft revelations from yesterday show that. Facebook expulsions show that very clearly, that the groups in question were fomenting violence from a fringe left perspective. So I think that we have to understand that we have a competitor uh, who, who sees this as strategic competition, and his interest is in dividing us in, internally. It's, it's, it's a strategy of chaos for strategic effect. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's incumbent on us to not politicize and, and make it uh, partisan. In, in terms of GEC, we work very closely with GEC. As you probably know, the department has put $20 million of our own resources towards this effort in the period when we're waiting on the additional funds. We're really looking forward to seeing our colleagues at um, Department of Defense move the additional $40 million so that we can uh, see the GEC be up and running in, in the way that it was intended in the areas related to Russian disinformation. Do you feel like you have the right staff on board at GEC to be able to punch back? I do. I think we have a very talented staff, um, some very capable uh, and knowledgeable Russia hands. Uh, we also work very closely with them from our bureau. In fact, when uh, uh, our colleagues in Russia were PNG'd and came back, we made excellent use of the talent base uh, to, to do a, a temporary plus up in some of those areas. I mentioned the uh, capacities that we've created at EUR, including the SARMOT role. Um, SARMOT is a, the, the acronym for this person's role. It's also the acronym for a Russian missile. I think it makes the point very clearly that we take the, we take the problem seriously. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I just think, uh, in general, the measurements you're using, again, I appreciate all the hard work you're doing, are the impact on the ruble, the impact on the economy, the impact on direct foreign investment. Those are interesting measurements and obviously are having an impact. The question is, what are the consequences of that as to Russian behavior with regard to, again, their both overt and covert espionage, disinformation, propaganda, avoiding sanctions, and so on. And, and that's the question I have is, can we see a measurable result in terms of the actual problems that we hope to be able to address. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I just want to concur with the leadership of this committee and thank both of you for your service and your testimonies today have been excellent and I think it's what we want to hear. So I, I, I applaud uh, your service. It's been 93 weeks since the presidential elections. And our intelligence community made a pretty quick assessment as to Mr. Putin's involvement in our elections. Bipartisan support in Congress took very quick action on the CATSA statute, recognizing the threat. I, I agree with Senator Portman that this committee and this Congress has, has acted in a very bipartisan manner, recognizing the threat of Russia. So I want to make that clear. And Mr. Mitchell, I appreciate the fact, Secretary Mitchell, I appreciate the fact that the, the policy that you're enumerating, one that, we, that I personally support, the way you articulated, indicating was directed by the president, the problem is the president hasn't followed it. That's the concern. There have been times when the president's made this a very partisan issue. We haven't, he has. So I think we need to really drill down on this just a little bit more as to how this policy is being implemented 
you point out in a very sobering way that Mr. Putin wants to break apart the American Republic. That's a pretty sobering statement you made. Totally consistent with the report that I authored on behalf of members of this committee in January that said that Mr. Putin's not only trying to compromise our democratic system here in America, but he has his eyes on democratic nations of Europe trying to bring them down as well. That's pretty sobering. But our report pointed out that to counter that, you need strong leadership. And I appreciate the fact that we've had arguments as to the effect of sanctions. One thing is clear to me, if you don't stand up to Mr. Putin, he'll take the situation and move even further. So have we seen a change of behavior the way we want it? No. If we didn't pass the sanctions, could there have been even more activities by Mr. Putin? Probably yes. He'll fill a void. So I think it's important for us to be very sober about Mr. Putin's activities and what he is trying to do. So let, let me get to this one point, because this really concerns me, about the president's actions. I saw Helsinki in the private meetings in Helsinki as filling into the narrative of Mr. Putin and his concept of how governments operate and compromising our democratic system by the manner in which that meeting took place. And after the meeting, they were celebrating in Moscow, and they were scurrying in Washington to try to figure out how to handle some of the statements that were made. So first, try to assure me that you, know, you say sanctions, you need discretion. I understand that from the point of view of the executive branch of government, you need discretion for them to have a policy. But the problem is one person can exercise that discretion the President of the United States. And we saw that the President might very well, we know that there's been discussions about Magnitsky sanctions and with Mr. Putin, et cetera. Have you been briefed as to what happened in Helsinki in regards to discussions on, on sanctions? I have been briefed on the appropriate information I need to carry out my job with relation to, to Russia, but the President's also been clear, as recently as an, an interview yesterday, which I would direct you to, uh, that this was the, the, the question that you're asking, when he was asked in the interview, he was very clear about this. And, and beyond that, I would say... He's very clear not in Helsinki. He was very clear with regard to raising with Vladimir Putin the unacceptability of interference in our elections. He's been very clear in his statements that he has not at any point raised the possibility of living. He did sanctions. that when he returned to Washington. He did not do that in Helsinki. Sir, with all due respect, I'm not going to litigate the specifics of every comment that the president has made. I would point you towards our policies that are directed by the president of the United States. I disagree with your overall characterization that, uh, that the president hasn't followed his policies. These are the president's policies. There's no distinction between the administration and the president. With re president directed a Russia strategy a strategy for countering Russian influence, the previous administration did not. I would point you to the 2010 national security strategy on Russia and compare it to our national security strategy as it relates to Russia. I would point you to what President Obama said in Moscow in 2009. He called Russia a mighty river and said that America wanted to ensure its rightful place among the great powers. So, so I understand the policy right now. You're assuring this committee that unless Russia changes its behavior, we will not only maintain all of our sanctions, you're looking for ways to strengthen those sanctions against Russia and are prepared to work with this committee 
to give you additional tools in order to make it clear that without tangible, specific results, these sanctions will be maintained and expanded. Yes, and I think that's also a clear from our actions of the past year and a half. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to make one interjection before turning to the next person. <clears throat> My observation would be that some of the undisciplined comments that the president makes creates just as much trouble for these people as they do for us and the rest of our country. Um, uh, let me just give an example. Um, the 232 tariff issue, which I believe is an abuse of the president's authority, were y'all involved at all in discussing the use of a national security waiver to put tariffs in place, which in your case, Mr. Mitchell, hugely affects the portfolio that you are working on? Um, were you asked or was your was the State Department asked about the use of... There was an extensive interagency discussion and process on that matter, and both State Department and EUR had a voice in the process. And did you support it? Uh, with regard specifically to the European Union? Yes. Uh, what I supported was the President's trade policy overall. We informed that strategy. Uh, and I think as you see from the current U.S.-EU dynamic in trade, it's a strategy that's working. I'll take a little more of my time. How is it working? We currently have a conversation underway, a structured dialogue with the European Union about a lowering of EU barriers to American products and services. Well, it's uh, our understanding that the European Union actually asked to go to zero tariffs when they met with the president on automobiles, and he did not want to do that. He wanted to keep the 25% tariff in place on light trucks. So it's us that is pushing for tariffs. The president has repeatedly and publicly, in the company of senior European leaders, pledged to go to zero zero if the, if the Europeans were willing to do this. The Europeans haven't, haven't been willing, willing to even engage in a process until the president used 232. So you support the use of a national security waiver to put tariffs in place on steel and aluminum? I support the president's trade policy, sir. And the, did the department recommend the use of the 232 waiver? <laughs> I'm not going to get into the deliberative process. This is one administration. There's an interagency process for everything related to what you're asking about, and we're on the same page. Senator Paul. Thank you. You know, I think we've asked some important questions, and a really important question that we have to ask is, do sanctions uh, change behavior? And so without the answer to that, I think we can't really decide whether we want more sanctions until we decide whether sanctions work. And that's another way of asking the question, do sanctions work? I think with regard to Iran, when the world had sanctions, there obviously is uh, evidence that it worked to bring Iran to the negotiating table. In this case, uh, there really is a question, do they work and do more sanctions uh, work even better? I think one possibility is that they don't work, and if they don't work, what is the result of sanctions? One result of sanctions might be that it drives Russia more into the uh, sphere of China and uh, drives a country such as Turkey more into the sphere of either Russia or China. And so I think there are arguments to be made that perhaps more sanctions aren't the way to go. Sanctions are sort of the stick, and the question is, what is the carrot? Um, I would say that uh, one of the carrots might be considering whether or not we continue to insist that Ukraine and Georgia be in NATO. Um, I think that if you really wanted to influence Russia's behavior, 
and you were talking in a one-to-one -one basis with Russia and you were to have some sort of agreement, I think an agreement not to have Ukraine and Georgia and NATO might uh, lead to less conflict in both Ukraine and Georgia. There is the argument that there, uh, much of the, uh, the uh, military conflict and fomenting of military conflict is because they do seriously fear and worry and are concerned and are opposed to uh, having them in NATO. Um, it was George Kennan who said in 1998 that if the West insists on pushing NATO into Eastern Europe and into the surrounding countries around Russia, that it will lead to the rise of militarism, nationalism, and ultimately an aggressive leader in Russia. And he said this in 1998, and I think, you know, his words uh, had great uh, prescience in the sense that uh, some of the reactions, some of the things you see in the world are, are reactions to actions that we take. With that being said, if we are uh, open to dialogue, as Mr. Mitchell said, in addition to both having the sanctions, the stick, but we still show an openness to dialogue, one of the things that I think we could and ought to consider is whether or not there's any element of the sanctions where we would be willing to negotiate lessening of sanctions in exchange for maybe a, a smaller change in behavior. Um, if we wait for Russia to leave Crimea to lift any sanctions, we may well be waiting till the end of time. But perhaps there are some sanctions that already we could see that are counterproductive. And the ones that I would throw out are sanctions that prevent the travel of legislators in their Duma and their Federation. And I think even in the midst of adding more sanctions, we ought to consider whether or not it's productive to dialogue to not have dialogue. Even if you want to complain about election meddling, you would think that you'd want to meet with the Russian uh, legislators to complain about election meddling. And I think if we cut off dialogue between the legislators uh, in Russia and here, that uh, I don't necessarily see that that's going to change their behavior, but it does block off the ability for us to have dialogue uh, with Russia from their foreign relations to our foreign relations. And so I would just ask that the members of the committee at least think about it as the pushes towards more dialogue, as is towards more sanctions, whether or not we ought to at least think about whether or not we want to prevent their legislators from traveling here, and then they do the same basically to our legislators. There are things that, despite our differences, though, that I think we should continue to talk about, and this is, I guess, the basis of my question. The New START Treaty uh, was uh, completed in 2010, expires at the end of 2020. Uh, I guess I would ask Mr. Mitchell, where do we stand on discussions with Russia? Do we have ongoing discussions? Do we have negotiators? Uh, what is the status of the New START Treaty and, and, and our discussions with Russia? Uh, thank you for that question, Senator, and if I could respond briefly to the first part of what you've said, I agree with you that sanctions are a tool of strategic uh, statecraft, and uh, right now the United States has 4,190 sanctions worldwide and 580 against the Russian Federation. Uh, what that points us towards is the need for sanctions to always be linked to a clear strategy. I think the role for Congress is to con continue to be very specific, as you were in CATSA about what change of behavior is needed in order for the sanctions to be lifted in any forthcoming legislation. With regard to New START, um, we've been very clear that Russia's violation of the INF Treaty has created a deficit of trust, and that extends across the arms control uh, ecosystem in all of our conversations with the Russians. Uh, we're looking very carefully and closely at the question of the future of New START. 
I would just say at this point, any decision regarding a potential extension would be made at the appropriate time, and we would determine whether the extending the treaty is in the national interest of the United States but, and our allies. We, we don't have a formal dialogue on either INF or New START with actual negotiators, or do we? Well, what we have at present uh, is uh, a line of sight to continuing the process on strategic stability talks, but we will only know more about that once National Security uh, Advisor Bolton comes back from his meeting with Patrushev later this week. Before turning to <clears throat> Senator Sheen, just to Senator Paul, I, I would make you aware and appreciate you know, your perspective that we were in conversation with the uh, former ambassador here from Russia about potentially reestablishing the parliamentary uh, discussions. In lieu of waiving sanctions, uh, what we had suggested was just meeting them in a neutral place, whether that be Israel or some other place. And so there were discussions of that type until the election issues uh, began in 2016, so 2016. So I did want you to know that those conversations had taken place in the past. There were no discussions uh, that I remember of waiving sanctions, but certainly meeting in neutral territory to begin a dialogue. Whether that's uh, something we want to discuss again, we can talk about that internally, but, but those have taken place in the past. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. And um, like other members of this committee, I applaud the policy positions that you've outlined today. I, I think the concern and confusion among Americans and the world actually has come because of the contradictory statements and actions of the president because of his behavior in Helsinki, because of his frequent tweets, because of his failure to consistently acknowledge Russia's actions to influence the 2016 elections and their ongoing meddling in 2018. So I appreciate the opportunity to explore the policy positions that are underway, but I think until we see a change in that behavior, we're going to continue to see confusion and concern, and I'm not asking you to respond to that. That was a statement, not a question. Um, can you, Mr. Billingsley, tell me the status of the Skripal sanctions that were announced on August 8th? Have they actually been imposed? Uh, Senator, the, the sanctions in response to the use of the nerve agent in the United Kingdom, those have been imposed. They were actually imposed under a State Department authority, uh, uh, and I would defer to Secretary Mitchell on that. We were in close consultation with the State Department in the run-up to that, and depending, uh, as, as Secretary Mitchell has indicated, depending on how Russia reacts, there is a, a menu of additional follow-on options that range in potential severity. Uh, which we're in, in continuing close discussion on as well. Secretary. And Secretary Mitchell, are we um, supporting Foreign Minister Hunt's call for the EU to impose greater sanctions against Russia in line with what the United States have done? And are we also working to try and encourage the EU to do that? Yes, we are, Senator, very much so. We're in close uh, consultation with our British counterparts uh, at this point on an almost daily basis and have been both with regard to the Skripal expulsions and ne next steps on sanctions. And I would just add, we were encouraged to see that the Europeans, partly because of U.S. engagement, um, created their own distinct chemical uh, weapons-related sanctions authorities, which was a new and important step. I, I agree. I think that's positive. Senator, could I also offer on that. One of the things we've... Only if it's new. You're using my time. I'll revert back to you, Senator. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, 
Secretary Mitchell, as we have discussed before, um, I had the opportunity to visit Syria and see um, the stabilization efforts that have taken place in northeast Syria along the Turkish border and how much the Syrian people have benefited from that, from throwing ISIS out of that, and continue to be very troubled by the fact that the administration has on hold the stabilization funds for that part of Syria. Um, how does continuing to deny efforts to support stabilization in that area fit with our Russia policy? Because doesn't that give Russia and Assad and Iran all, and Turkey for that matter, all the opportunity to um, go into that part of Syria, which has a chance now with continued stabilization and continued um, support to be uh, a place where um, the Syrians can enjoy some level of freedom from violence and from Assad and his regime and from all the other actors in the region. So how does that make sense in terms of a policy for, well, thank you for the Syria question. and Russia? I, no, I appreciate the question, and I would say um, nothing uh, would be better from a Russian perspective than to see U.S. aid flowing in Syria in many different regards uh, prior to a clear commitment to a political process at Geneva. Uh, it's, this is part of the stock Russian approach to next steps on Syria, uh, to see the United States essentially bankroll various forms of stabilization reconstruction uh, before we see the Russians do their part in committing to a political process. Well, I'm not talking about all of Syria. I'm talking about that part uh, of I understand the question, Northeast but Syria you, that you asked we have how it actually was committed to, the to Russia strategy. How does how does allowing other um, foreign influence to go into that area and undermine everything we've done to stabilize the region post ISIS? Uh, to work with the Syrian Democratic Forces, how does that benefit a policy that says we would like to get people to the table? If anything, I think it would encourage the Russians to go to the table because they see what we've been able to do working with the Syrian people there. Senator, what I would say is we take very seriously taxpayer resources as they re relate to the Syria problem in its entirety. We're cognizant of how that fits with the larger Russia strategy. And it's not clear to me that the actions that we're having are widening or creating a vacuum for other players. Have you been there? No, ma'am. I, I would encourage you to go. I think it would be very um, illuminating in terms of the difference that we've been able to make with our military on the ground there, with other coalition forces, and to give up the playing field there and to allow other influences to go back in, I think, is not in our interest or the Syrian people's interest. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Young. Secretary Mitchell, um, welcome. I'd, I'd like to return to what you have indicated in your written statement is uh, Putin's thesis, uh, that the American Constitution is an experiment that will fail if challenged in the right way from within. Putin wants to break apart the American Republic, you say, not by influencing an election or two, but by systematically inflaming the perceived fault lines that exist within our society. This is indeed a very serious point. Can you elaborate on that uh, point? Well, I think what we see in um, Russian strategic behavior as it relates to influence operations is more or less con consistent with um, 
standard Russian operating procedure and influence operations all the way back to the 1930s. Uh, the Bolsheviks and later the Soviet state. I mean, look, even, even within the United States, before the social media age, Russians have, have been at this since at least the 1960s or 70s. Uh, this is not, not particularly new in that regard. What is new is the tools and the scale so the digitization of this, digital uh, means and, and social media, and the fact that this is being directed from a very high level with a lot of state resources behind it. I think um, what we've seen in Russian uh, approach to the United States and influence operations uh, is very much not a partisan effort. I think it's a very cynical effort to pit pre-existing political camps against one another. Um, I would just refer you to some of the groups that Facebook made the decision to shut down Look at what they were promoting. Look at what they stood for. These particular groups were on the, on the far left. We're aware very much from media of those on the far right. These were from the far left. They were uh, putting money and, and organizational efforts behind uh, groups that stood for really heinous and hideous causes inside the American polity. Uh, we've seen since January of last year, after the president was elected, the, pres the Russians have put money behind groups that have fomented anti-Trump protests, including the one at Ma Madison Square Garden that drew thousands of people immediately after the election. So the point is that from our competitor's standpoint, the goal is to divide us internally. There's not any reflective political philosophy as it relates to, the, to, to American politics. It's an effort to divide us. We've, we've heard from members uh, various documents produced from the intelligence committee in the past uh, as well that the difference here uh, is, is not in the attempt to influence uh, the United States, but it, it is indeed in the tools. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, the breadth and extent of, uh, to which uh, the influence operations uh, have been tried. It may also have something to do with uh, the interaction between those tools and a particular moment in political history as well. So, uh, Secretary Billingsley, I, I welcome you as well uh, to this committee. Great to have you. Uh, you write in your prepared written statement that uh, Russia's continuing occupation of Crimea, human rights abuses, malicious cyber attacks, illicit procurement of sensitive defense and intel technologies, election interference, and other influence efforts, as well as their support uh, to the Assad's regime, massacre of its own uh, citizens are, are all unacceptable. Um, you know, my colleagues have, have, have already asked in a couple of different ways whether or not the sanctions are working. Uh, I think there's been an acknowledgement that the purpose of the sanctions is, is not just uh, to influence the Russian economy, it's to deal with these other objectives, these continuing problems we have. Uh, have we seen improvement with respect to in, any of these? Crimea, human rights, cyber attacks, uh, uh, procurement of, of sensitive technology, so on and so forth, election interference on account of our implementation of sanctions? Uh, Senator, that's a great question. I, there's a difference between working and having an effect. Um, our sanctions are working to the extent that they are integrated into a larger uh, strategy that the administration is executing to deal with these Russian malign behaviors. But our sanctions are also having a clear and measurable effect. Ross Oberon, I'll give you some examples. Ross Oberon Export, which is their huge defense conglomerate that was selling the fighter jets, dropping the barrel bombs of chlorine on the, on the, on the populations in, in Syria. They're having a hard time getting paid for a number of their, of their deals. So we're impairing, 
we're impairing the effectiveness and we are constraining the yeah. Putin regime in their, in their freedom of maneuver. But again, the extent to which it's all working depends upon all the synchronization of a lot of other measures. Right. So that's, yeah, I understand there ought to be a, a broader strategy. So can uh, you name uh, some of the other tools that are being uh, implemented, utilized uh, to effect change in these many continuing areas of, uh, of challenge? Um, and uh, perhaps you can tell us what additional steps we might take vis-a-vis -vis the Russians to implement that change. Chairman, if I might, and I'll kind of sneak in what I what I wanted to say to Senator Shaheen as well here, which is in, in the capacity as this committee, the work that you do, it's incredibly important that we message very clearly to a number of European allies, particularly Eastern European allies, that it is crucial that they shore up their anti-money laundering regimes and that they clamp down and tighten down on how they regulate money coming out of Russia. There is an enormous amount of money that is still being exfiltrated from Russia by both organized crime and, and cronies surrounding Putin. And so to the extent that you have parliamentary relations with Latvia or you engage with Cyprus and Malta or other offshore jurisdictions, I think reinforcing that message would be incredibly helpful. We really need to clamp down globally on these money flows that are associated with, with the movement of large amounts of money out of, out of, out of Russia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I, I thought that our hearing with Secretary Pompeo was uh, extraordinary, and I frankly wish that it had gotten more attention. Um, I thought it was extraordinary in a number of respects, but chiefly um, in the argument that the Secretary was making to us that we should ignore what the President says and pay attention only to what the State Department does. Um, and we're hearing a strain of that today. But the, the, the argument is extraordinary because it essentially admits that there are two different American foreign policies today. There is one articulated by the president in his statements that he makes standing next to President uh, Putin or on his Twitter feed just yesterday to Reuters. The president once again said that it might not have been the Russians that interfered in the U.S. election. And then there is uh, the, I would argue, much more mainstream foreign policy that's being administered in part by uh, the two incredibly capable patriotic um, representatives of the American government standing here today. Um, and so I wanted to uh, pose a question, I guess, to, to you, uh, Secretary Mitchell, um, in the context of how this plays out on the issue of propaganda, building off of the uh, question that Senator Portman asked you. Um, I thank you for the work that you've done to stand up the GEC while you're waiting for the transfer authority. You've gone and, and worked with Secretary Pompeo to find some money to get that up and running, and I uh, agree that it's going to make uh, a difference. Um, but there was a really interesting poll from uh, about a week ago in this country uh, that showed that 43% of Republican voters believe that the president should have the authority to close news outlets engaged in bad behavior, which is reflective of this obsession, especially over the past few weeks, that the president has with what he calls the enemy of the people which is a really, really terrible term given the fact that it is rooted in a Stalin era, era um, a murderous campaign against journalists and anyone that opposed uh, the Russian government at that point. Um, and so I feel like you're doing some great stuff on the GEC, you're doing some innovative work to push back on Russian propaganda, but then the president is handing uh, the Russian government a gift 
by his regular attacks on the free press, which seems to endorse the same kind of work that Putin is doing in his own country and around the periphery. Um, and so I guess the question is, you know, isn't Putin's assault on the free and independent press inside Russia and in the Russian periphery um, emboldened by President Trump's regurgitation of these Stalin-era attacks on American media? Thank you for your questions, uh, Senator. Let me respond to the two things that I've heard you say. The first, I just want to pu push back on this idea that there is a strategy that's separate from the views of the president. This is the president's administration. This is his foreign policy. National security strategy, national defense strategy, the directives that we have from policy are coming from the president. Um, the strategy overall I would characterize on Russia in one sentence. Continue raising the cost until Russian aggression ceases while keeping the door open to dialogue. I think if you look at the last 18 months, that's exactly what we've done. Uh, I look at the uh, president's efforts at dialogue within the context of an administration that's increasing defense spending by $700 billion, recapitalizing a nuclear arsenal, and has had 217, 222 sanctions to date on Russian individuals and entities. In contrast to a previous administration that sought dialogue, but did so while gutting our military, talking about global zero in nuclear weapons. So I think the context matters. I think the strategy documents send a very clear signal about what we're trying to accomplish vis-a-vis -vis Russia, and I think it's the right approach. Right, but the, the president said yesterday that it might not have been Russia that interfered in the 2016 elections. You, that is not the policy of the U.S. State Department, right? That, but that's what the president said yesterday. I have a list in front of me with dates that I'd be happy to submit for the record of the instances on which the president of the United States has been very clear in attributing to Russia interference in our elections and pushing back on that interference. Got it, yesterday. Um, so, but just tell me how it plays out in, in the context of propaganda and specifically talk about whether you have any fears about what the president's rhetoric on the American free press being an enemy of the people has on your work. Because again, I, 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 I think you're trying to do the right thing here and trying to work with us. But if you think it's no problem, tell me that it's well, no look, problem. Well, look, Senator, I mean, I just, in point of fact, I, I'd like to be clear that what the president has said is not that the free press, quote, is an enemy of people. He has said that fake news is the enemy of the people. Yeah, Clearly, New Yorker, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC. A healthy fourth estate is a fundamental bulwark of a represent representational republic. Uh, I think today's media, we would all agree, is unprecedentedly polemical. And the political debate in this country has gone beyond the pale of what we've seen on the part of the media in a very long time. That's part of a healthy democracy. If what you're asking me to do is comment on politics, I'm going to stick to my job, which is policy. Thank you, Mr. I, listen, I, I don't want to lead you down this road because I frankly know what you believe. I know that you don't believe that the press is the enemy of the, the, the people. And um, I, I just want to make sure that this committee understands that uh, we got a tough job uh, trying to give you the resources while, you are, while your work is being compromised by the statements of the president. So again, I, I think we're, we're all very appreciative of the work that you're doing. Uh, I just think it's important in these hearings to acknowledge that um, this separation between the president's rhetoric and the policy of the State Department. But, Again, I, I, I just it. want to say we, the, the foreign policy of the United States, we are, are executing the policy directives of the president, full stop. If I could, uh, we do appreciate the work both of you do, and you know that. I think that, you know, what we see happening is what George Cannon said in his telegram the long time ago, back in 1946. I mean, this is what Russia has been carrying out for years and to 
foment disunity in our own country, but also disunity with other Western powers. I mean, this has been a, a long term. We had some glimmers of hope at points in time. It, we spent a long time since we had those glimmers of hope, but it's basically been the same policy. And I think sometimes the president's comments create, help create additional disunity with the West. And I think that's what people are referring to here. And we know that makes your job difficult, but we have these policies that are put in place. We are unified behind those policies. You are unified. But our Commander-in-Chief uh, continues to undermine those with either undisciplined comments or purposeful comments, and that's what the committee's referring to. Senator Isaacson. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And I'd love to follow on with uh, Senator Murphy's comments from the press, but they've talked to me more about the cost of newsprint than they've talked to me about the comments with the President. So we'll leave it at that. They're winning. Hopefully they win one of those arguments soon. Secretary Mitchell, let me ask you a question. Um, in your prepared statement, I, followed, I read the following quote, and it's in quotation marks. Military power that is second to none, fully integrated with our allies and all of our instruments of power, referring to the strength of America's foreign policy, lies in military power that is second to none, fully integrated with our allies and all our instruments of power. Is that correct? And I agree with that. And do you feel like at this point in time in, in history, we are at that point where we are fully integrated and we are fully cooperative and we are fully funded, working towards, working towards NDAA. I realize it's not all funded yet, but we're on the right, you think we're on the right track? I think we're on the right track. I think we disagree with our allies on a lot of areas of policy. But on a daily basis, we see a lot more commonality between the United States and European allies than we see differences. And it seems to me that there's no policy that's going to work anyway unless America's strength and militarily is not strong and is the ultimate fallback position. Yes, sir. You don't want it to be your opening hand, but you want it to be the ace in your hole. And well, I think it, it, it provides the basis and context for everything else you do in your strategy. And again, you can see this by contrasting this administration with the previous administration. If you have an attempt at dialogue with Russia in the form of the reset, while you have sequestration underway, you're operating from a position of weakness. And while you're trying to go to nuclear zero, you're operating fr from a position of weakness. If you have an attempt at dialogue with the Russian Federation in the context of a strong national defense establishment where you've got uh, tremendous uh, $700 billion increase underway and you're recapitalizing your nuclear arsenal, I think you're operating from a position of strength. You're sending the right signal, there's no doubt about it, in my opinion. On talking about nuclear weapons, on the New START Treaty, I was in the Senate in, I guess, 2010, Mr. Chairman, when we did the New START Treaty. It's coming up in 2021, I think that treaty expires, is that correct? 2020? I think you were asked a minute ago by Senator Paul if, you, if the administration had taken a position yet on moving forward on renegotiations for the 2020 uh, reauthorization of the New START Treaty. Have you? We have not. Have the Russians engaged in any conversation about it? Uh, they've raised it on more than one occasion. Uh, the, the Russians canceled the previous uh, attempt at, at uh, strategic stability talks, which we saw as a broader indicator of where we're at on arms control. As you probably know, it's publicly known, they have some questions about various aspects of American compliance with New START that we see as being uh, nefarious. Uh, short answer to your question is, at this point, there is not an administration position on what we're going to do on New START. We'll make that decision at the appropriate time, consistent with U.S. national interests. In the New START Treaty, we negotiated a unique identifier on warheads, which we never had before. How has that worked since its implementation? Uh, I would want to provide a, uh, a fuller response in a classified setting. 
I'd like to have that if we could, because in the end, that's going to get the foundation of a lot. If we ever go far enough with North Korea that we're, in effect, removing nuclear weapons, we're going to need to have some systems like that to make sure we can check and verify and trust and verify. And I think that was a good program that we established in the New START Treaty. Lastly, I have seen the horrible pictures on TV almost every night in the last week about the gas and, and chemical weapons used in Syria. And I know the Russians have pretty much gotten their, I think they've gotten their lease established on their deep water port, is that correct? They, they, were, see, they, were, they were meddling in Syria for a lot of reasons, but one of them was access to a port, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question, sir? I understand that Russians have negotiated some access to, with Syria to a port that they sought very badly in, uh, to get out of the conflict with Syria. Is that correct? Uh, to, uh, I, I'm sorry, I still don't fully understand the question. Okay, well, then I'll read it exactly. Uh, uh, in Syria? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Did I say something wrong? No, I just misunderstood. Okay, good. What do you think is the future prospects for, in the Syrian situation for Russian continued engagement and further engagement by Iran in Syria? It, it appears that's going from a situation that got to a reasonable case of hope to an unreasonable position of, of hate being fulfilled. What do you see? Uh, we, we see two things. On one hand, you do see uh, some modest um, constructive steps on the part of the Russians. I would call, uh, in particular, attention to the engagement with Israel, uh, looking into some of Israel's security concerns as they relate to, uh, to uh, Syria. Uh, on the other hand, you see uh, uh, Putin aiding and abetting a murderous regime, not supporting the Geneva, the legitimate process of Geneva, and creating a parallel process in Astana. So, uh, on balance, the Russians are not being a constructive actor in Syria. Thank you very much. Thank you both for your service. Senator Booker, not here. Senator Markley. They're arguing over there as to who's there. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for your, your testimony. Uh, in, uh, in February, the State Department put out a statement that New START enhances the safety and security of the U.S. While you haven't reached a decision on whether it's going to be extended, is that a statement that you, uh, you feel comfortable uh, continuing to assert? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. We have uh, various reports circulating of the conversations that took place in the President's one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting with President Putin. Has there now been, for the assistance of the uh, departmental interagency process, a, a, a sense of a clear memo of what was discussed and what should flow from those discussions? Uh, both Secretary Pompeo and, and Assistant, or I'm sorry, uh, National Security Advisor Bolton have been clear that they received extensive debriefing by the President. Uh, that has trickled through in the form of policy directives. There's been extensive interagency process in the uh, period since Helsinki and communication with all of our posts. Can you share a couple of those policy directors that have, have flown from that one-on-one -on -one meeting? So the policy directives after Helsinki are a continuation of previous policy. Uh, with regard to Ukraine, the centrality of Russian compliance with the Minsk agreements uh, as the gateway to any forward movement. You're on saying those Syria. were specifically things discussed by the president? Sure. In that uh, the only agreement in Helsinki was an agreement for the two national security councils to meet. That wasn't the question. But you can go on in confusing the situation between the one-on-one the -on -one meeting and the broader meeting. And, but it's, that's, that's not helpful when that's not what we're asking. Now let's turn to uh, Myanmar. Uh, this Saturday is the one-year anniversary of the launch of the, the, the massive 
ethnic cleansing that took place. And um, right now, we understand there's a State Department report that is being held and possibly is going to be released. Uh, is it going to be released? And I'm not sure which one of you would like to respond to that. I'd be happy to get you more information on this, sir. It doesn't fall under my area of responsibility, but I've followed the issue broadly and would be happy to follow up with you. Yes, Could I, <clears throat> yes please. Senator, we're at Treasury, we are we're tracking this very closely, and we have just last week sanctioned a number, two actually two of the Army units involved and a number of the, the officials who've been Four, four specifically, and, and two Army units, but not the heads of them, which both Canada and Europe have sanctioned. So we have, still haven't reached the same point that Canada and Europe reached far earlier. Uh, is it your sense that this State Department report will be released on the anniversary? I'm, it's a State Department question, Senator. Okay. Uh, let me just uh, uh, share with you that bipartisan members of this committee weighed in with a letter to the State Department uh, saying specifically, seize the opportunity with this one-year anniversary Seize this opportunity to release the report. Seize this opportunity uh, to uh, provide more aggressive uh, uh, sanctions. Uh, seize this opportunity to reinforce our support for Bangladesh, which is struggling with the during the middle of a monsoon with the uh, housing uh, refugee camp for 700,000 additional Rohingya. Uh, seize this opportunity for the president to speak specifically uh, to this issue because outside of a, a confidential setting, he hasn't done so. And this is really a place in the world when there is massive uh, uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing. If America is to be respected in the world, our president needs to speak to the issue. Uh, so I'll, I'll just ask each of you, do you support the idea that the, the United States show some leadership in response to this ethnic cleansing? Thank you. Thank you. The uh, uh, challenge we face on the election hacking continues to be uh, substantial, but also there's a lot of discussion about how Russia is continuing to aggravate social divisions in this, in this country to, to basically set Americans against uh, Americans on a host of uh, social issues. Um, do you feel like we're doing all we can to, to take on this uh, effort uh, for, by Russia to, to tear uh, big holes in the social fabric of our nation? I do. We have a whole-of-government approach and a strong interagency process, but I will add, as you've heard from Secretary Pompeo, we welcome additional tools from Congress uh, and use them um, with all the appropriate authorities. On top of that, Senator, as, as we continue to refine the evidence uh, on the entities and the individuals who are engaged in this kind of unacceptable behavior, we're going to go after them. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Resch. Thank you very much. Um, gentlemen, thank you for your service. And uh, this has been uh, uh, very productive, I think, as you've gone through these things. First of all, I hope the American people uh, will take note of the uh, uh, effect, the direct effect that our sanctions have had so far. Uh, I think that was a, a, a really good explanation of, of this effect, which really isn't reported very widely in the national media, and I expect they probably won't be this time, but the more exposure that we can give them uh, is really important. I think that, um, obviously, uh, the sanctions uh, have, have two purposes. One is a, a direct effect uh, to inflict pain, but the real objective is to change conduct. 
And, uh, you know, you also did a good job, I think, of listing the conduct that we're attempting to change. And that is really a stunning list of, of some awful things that the Russians are doing and continue to do. And uh, I think that uh, uh, one, of the, one of the points that's been made here, I think, is the frustration w uh, that everyone has that the, uh, that the sanctions aren't causing immediate uh, change in conduct. But I think our experience over the years has been that uh, sanctions are not uh, like a kinetic, are not like kinetic action. They don't spur uh, immediate change in conduct, but really take time. I think the best example of that right now is the sanctions have been placed on Iran, and they've, they've been in place for a long, long time. And again, one of the underreported stories is the effect that uh, the sanctions are having internally uh, on the financial affairs in Iran. Uh, it, it, is, it is stunning when, uh, when you find out what the details of that are. But again, it's for whatever reason, uh, it, it's not being uh, reported. And I think the same thing is going to take place here. And, and the question um, that I have for you is, could you know when you when you do do these sanctions and it does inflict pain on a populace, it takes time for the for that pain to trickle up, if you would, uh, and the populace start to pressure the uh, uh, people that are actually in charge. Um, obviously, uh, when it's when when you're in a country that is that is uh, influenced more by a religious fervor, uh, a radical religious fervor like it is in Iran, that's different than in Russia, where the dollar, uh, where, where money is, is really important. What, what are your, what, I'd like to hear each of your opinions on time that this is going to take, because we, we over the years, I know uh, we've sat in this room and talked about the patience that it takes as we were uh, attempting to influence Iran. I'd like to, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the time that this is going to take before it, it does actually uh, start to pressure the people at the top where there will be some change in behavior. Mr. Billingsley, could we start with you, please? Thank you, Senator. Um, you know, I, you raise exactly the, the key point, which is that sanctions are designed to, to induce a change in behavior. And very seldom, I think, do we see that sanctions have an instantaneous uh, effect in that respect. But the cumulative effect over time can, in fact, be a, a noteworthy change in behavior. And that's what we're seeking to accomplish in all of the different sanctions regimes that we're implementing, whether we're talking about the executive orders related to Venezuela, or we're talking about the North Korea campaign or the Iranian campaign, or in the case of, of Russia. The, the challenge we face, though, with Russia is that we're dealing with a markedly different scale here in terms of, of the size of the economy. This is the world's 13th largest economy. It's a trillion-dollar economy. Uh, they, you know, they're the foremost oil producer. They're the second largest oil exporter. Uh, they hold <clears throat> Europe, in effect, hostage to energy supply uh, in so many respects. Uh, they also are deeply into the supply chains uh, relating to copper, uh, even titanium with us. So it's a different, it's a different calculus and a different calibration than uh, we would be dealing with the hermit kingdom of North Korea or the Iranians. Mm -hmm. So again, I just <clears throat> recommend that the way we, uh, I'll say, attack the Russia challenge uh, has, to, has to take this into account. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mitchell? I would, occur, I would concur with that, and I appreciate you raising that point. I, we always differentiate between the Russian people 
and the Russian state and oligarchy, I think the Russian people have suffered enormously. We look for every way possible in our bureau to engage the Russian people. That's often difficult. I recently attended the commemoration of the Boris Nemtsov Street uh, in front of the Russian embassy. I think it's incredibly important to keep up that engagement. Um, I think your, your broader question is, is apt. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a certain uh, calculus, I think, on Putin's part that he, he and those around him can weather to some extent sanctions because of the insularity of, of the regime. Um, this is a fairly insulated regime and oligarchy. We've gone more deeply into the territory of going after those individuals than previous administration. We've gone after Putin's son-in-law, uh, Vexelberg, Deripaska. I mean, my own view of this is when you see Putin's popularity uh, ratings falling by 15, 20% since he was elected, that doesn't mean change comes immediately, but I think it, it does underscore that the pain is, is starting to have an effect. I think this administration has been clear that we, we are pre prepared to take additional steps. Um, there is an escalatory ladder to sanctions. We're aware of what the additional steps would be needed to make an even bigger point. Uh, and I think if you look at our actions over the last year and a half, they have been uh, escalatory and, and progressive, and we're willing to take the, the steps necessary to further penalize Russian behavior. Thanks. Thank you both for what you're doing. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Russian spokesperson this morning said that uh, they've been advised that there is no evidence of collusion so uh, in, in between Russia and the United States in the election. So they're clearly in denial, and that, that continues to be their, their posture. Um, and, uh, and we're hearing that their behavior continues, and in fact, maybe intensifying 10 weeks before an election in the United States of America. So if that's the case, how, uh, how, how much more authority do you need to ratchet up the sanctions against Russia? It's 10 weeks to go. Time is of the essence. Um, do you intend on doing that, given the evidence that you have right now? We don't have a time for a long, deliberative process here. We have to make sure, especially in the final four weeks of the election, that the sanctions are in place. Uh, first part of what you've said, I uh, would just say that I think the public statements from the Russian government are deliberately obfuscat uh, obfuscatory. Um, we convoked the Russian charge immediately after the Facebook uh, expulsions. And I think the general Russian official posture is one to deliberately mislead and say, we have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I would say in response to your question... To me, it just says to me, they're not responding, they're not listening. Uh, only the infliction of additional sanction pain is going to get them to change their behavior. We need an intervention in the underlying pathology here. Uh, I wouldn't read into their public in the defense, uh, Obfuscation in the defense of of interjection of a foreign power into our elections uh, is an obvious strategy. So what do we do now? So I wouldn't, I understand your point and I agree. I wouldn't confuse the statements that are being made by the Russian foreign ministry publicly with the question of whether we're having an impact. To answer your question, I would say we have the authority that we need and we're using that authority. Yeah, so I'm asking you, is the impact working right now? Or are they just continuing and escalating in your opinion? Well, I would um, reference what Director Coates said and what Director Ray said, that this is broad and deep. It's ongoing. We're not at the levels that we saw in the lead-up to the 2016 election. It, it, it is a very serious threat. It's an ongoing threat. We have an interagency process and set of structures to confront it. Well, uh, I think that it's time to have the interagency meeting that uh, 
10 weeks out that makes the decisions as to whether or not we uh, increase those sanctions. With regard to the uh, discussion between Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump um, and uh, the New START Treaty, can you tell us what, what happened in that discussion between the two of them? These were not deeply substantive discussions. The only agreement that came out of Helsinki was for the two National Security Councils to meet again, which they're doing this week. So you're saying there was no uh, uh, extensive discussion about New START between the two of them? I, I think both the President and the Secretary have been clear on that publicly. Okay. Now, with regard to the INF Treaty, was there um, a discussion between uh, Putin and Trump on that issue? I'm not sure what has been said publicly about that by uh, the President, uh, and I want to uh, respect executive prerogative and not get into the private details of a conversation uh, between these two leaders. Have you been briefed on uh, any conversation that uh, took place between um, Trump and Putin on the INF Treaty? I have received the information I need to do my job as it relates to Russia. Does that mean that you have been briefed on the INF Treaty? If the, if the, did the President say to, uh, to uh, Putin that Russia is in violation of a treaty uh, that deals with nuclear weapons threat to the United States? Did he, did he say those words to... Um, I'm not aware of any part of the conversations that was devoted to the subject of INF. You are not? No. Okay. Um, do you believe that the INF Treaty is in our national security interest? I do. I also believe that Russian compliance with the INF Treaty is in our interest. That, well, by definition. And, uh, and do you feel the same way about the, start, the new START Treaty? I do. Yeah. Uh, and similar caveat. Um, and, uh, and again, obvious in that it should be uh, extended. Um, I, I was pleased to see this morning sanctions against Russia for aiding North Korea. Uh, that was a positive step, but I still worry about enforcing existing sanctions. For example, on North Korean slave labor, uh, recent reports indicate Russia is still using North Korea uh, uh, labor regularly. Uh, Mr. Billingsley, uh, are you considering additional sanctions against uh, Russia because of their use of that North Korean labor? Senator, <clears throat> thanks for the, the question. We continue to press together with the Department of State Russia to abide by the UN Security Council resolutions which call for a wind up of the labor uh, licenses and the return of, of those workers out of Russia. Uh, and we are concerned about the slow roll that we are observing in connection with that. We also are very, very extremely concerned about other evasion behaviors. So that are, you, are you considering new sanctions? On Russia, we are. Because of this North Korean labor issue? Senator, I'd have to get back to you on that. Okay. I'll get back to you on that. Well, I think that's I, I don't want to telegraph punches publicly, but we're actively looking at evasion scenarios across the board. Okay, very good. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, just to give you a chance, Mr. Mitchell, to, Secretary Mitchell, to clean up, when you said the elections, uh, the interference right now is not as it was in 2016, what you're saying is the interference that we're seeing is, is less intense. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, and I was referencing Director Coates' comments. Yeah, thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to both of you for being here today. I want to commend uh, the State Department for following up on uh, Senator Markey's comments, uh, sanctioning Russian ships for their continued trade violations of sanctions uh, when it comes to North Korea. Uh, but I also would point out additional um, articles, uh, the Wall Street Journal and others, that talk about 
the depths of continued uh, uh, acceptance uh, into Russia of North Korean laborers. Uh, it doesn't seem to be lessening. In fact, it seems to be increasing. And I would hope that uh, you would take a look, uh, Secretary Billingsley, at the C4 ADS report. Uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. It identifies names of businesses that are asking for Korean translators, hiring Korean translators to deal with the number of foreign workers they have coming in from North Korea. We know that as much as 80% of the salary that the North Korea worker is supposed to receive is being siphoned off and going to prop up the Kim Jong-un regime for a grand total of over $2 billion. Uh, that goes into directly uh, the nefarious activities that uh, he continues to pursue, including uh, reports today from the UN uh, watchdog, the IAEA, that there is no indication that North Korea is slowing down or stopping its nuclear program. And so if we're going to have and say that we have a doctrine of maximum pressure, then perhaps it's time that we start saying publicly that we're going to sanction these companies in Russia, in China, and around the globe that continue to violate uh, sanctions when it comes to North Korea. And I think if we uh, are, are going to be serious about trying to get Russia and China to uh, follow through on their commitments to UN sanctions, then perhaps we can take a look at the names of these companies uh, and start sanctioning them. I mean, here's one... Uh, uh, right here, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it, uh, but uh, there's Zenko, uh, Genko, Sakarenma. I mean, these are all companies that continue to take North Korean laborers, and it would be nice to see uh, the Treasury starting to sanction them. Um, on August 2nd, as you know, CATSA was signed last year uh, by the President. Section 324 of CATSA requires determination within 90 days uh, whether North Korea should be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. That determination was made on November 20th. President Trump announced North Korea designated a state sponsor of terror, stating North Korea has repeatedly supported acts of international terrorism, including, including assassinations on foreign soil. Uh, February 22, 2018, the United States determined under the Chemical and Biological Weapons Control and Warfare Elimination Act of 1991 that the government of North Korea used the chemical warfare agent VX to assassinate a Kim Jong-nam, Kim Jong-un's half-brother, in the Kuala Lumpur airport. The Treasury Department subsequently imposed sanctions against North Korea for that attack. On March 4, 2018, the Russian government attempted to assassinate two Russian nationals in Salisbury, United Kingdom. On August 8, 2018, the State Department determined that the Russian Federation has used chemical or biological weapons in violation of international law or has used lethal chemical or biological weapons against its own nationals in the Salisbury attack. The Treasury Department subsequently imposed sanctions against Russia for that attack. On April 24th, I introduced, along with Senator Menendez, and I know he's talked about this today as well, a language identical to the CATSA provisions regarding North Korea, uh, regarding, requiring the State Department to make a determination whether Russia should be designated as a state sponsor of terror. Language was also included in the Defending America Security from Kremlin Aggression Act, DASCA, introduced by Senators Graham on August, myself and others, uh, August 2nd. Uh, I wrote in an op-ed uh, not too long ago that the moral case for such a designation is sound, designation of Russia as a state sponsor of terror. Russia has invaded its neighbors Georgia and Ukraine. It supports the murderous regime of Bashar al-Assad and our enemies in Afghanistan. And it is engaged in active information warfare against Western democracies, including meddling in the 2016 United States election, and as we've talked about here, uh, continuing to attempt uh, to influence the elections going forward. Uh, to both of you, do you believe that the Russian Federation has repeatedly supported acts of international terrorism, including assassinations on foreign soil? Mr. Billingsley, yes or no? Uh, Senator, they've definitely engaged in outrageous behavior. The Salisbury attack is unacceptable. So they've engaged in uh, attempted assassinations on yeah, foreign soil? Uh, more than once. Mr. Mitchell, Secretary Mitchell. Yeah, 
I agree with the premise of your question. I don't want to get ahead of our deliberative processes on what, what we do about that, but there's no contesting the fact of Russian behavior uh, in these cases. Do categories. you agree that the Salisbury attack is not the only instance where Russia has attempted assassinations on foreign soil? Secretary Mitchell? I would not be prepared to answer that definitively in this setting. Secretary Billingsley? I think we'd need to go into closed session, but I'd be comfortable saying it's they're engaged in this behavior more than once. Um, do you agree that Russia is an otherwise malign actor whose actions undermine U.S. national security, global peace, and stability? Secretary Billingsley? Senator, I do. Secretary Mitchell? Assuredly. Do you agree the Kremlin has violated international law, Ukraine, Syria, and elsewhere around the, the globe? Yes. Secretary, both of you, yes. Um, would you support a process that would allow the State Department uh, 90 days to determine whether or not Russia should be designated as a state sponsor of terror? Secretary Mitchell? I would need more information and would want to consult with our team and know the Secretary's views. Uh, I understand the direction that you're going with this, and I think the appropriate way to go about it would be when our team in the next week or so comes over and uh, gives a structured response to some of the legislation that's being considered. Secretary Billingsley? Well, Senator, that, that's a State Department call on designation, right? <laughs> However, it is important to know that if we have any evidence that a Russian actor is supporting a, a, a terrorist, we will go after them regardless of state sponsor level designations. Uh, Secretary Billingsley, just quickly, what additional sanctions would Russia face if such a designation were to be made? Uh, if State Department were to determine yeah. that they're a state sponsor, uh, I, I would say there would not be an immediate um, wave of actions. We'd have to work with the Department of State uh, to then identify which prongs within the Russian government would be viewed as the enablers of those behaviors, much the way we've done that in other other cases. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you both for being here. Um, my question is going to be about deterrence, but I want to lay the framework that I think is already embedded in your testimony. Um, one of the things I think we're, st we're struggling with two things as we debate it broadly and even here on the committee and beyond. And the, the first is that I don't think we fully accept yet that we're back to sort of a historically normal era of great power competition. For 25, 27 years, we've been in a unipolar world and we had dif difficulties with certain countries. Now we have a near-peer competitor in China for the first time in a quarter century, and we have, at least in the military realm, a near-peer competitor in certain spheres, uh, geopolitically as well, in, in Russia. And, and in that realm, the second thing I think we struggle with is the notion that informational warfare is not warfare. It is warfare by different means. It has always been a part of warfare. The difference now is that propaganda and efforts to divide, demoralize, confuse the enemy uh, you can do it electronically now. And, and, and so what's happening now is not a part of an effort to help Republicans, Democrats, independents, vegetarians, whoever, whatever party you want to take. It is an effort to help uh, divide us against each other and weaken us internally and from within. That's a tactic. And in terms of our policies, you see some of the simplistic way people approach us. There's one group that almost argues we shouldn't be talking at all to them, right? And uh, which I think is, despite my deep antagonism towards Vladimir Putin, what he represents and the things he's done, I don't want to see a shooting war because it would be catastrophic for the world. And so at, at a minimum, that should keep you engaging and talking and, and working where possible within the context of understanding you are in a competition more of his making than ours, but nonetheless one that he believes in, a, a zero-sum one in which we can only, he can only get stronger if we get weaker. And the flip side of it is if we just talked, if we just were nicer to each other, uh, we would be able to get along better, which is also false because at the end, it goes back to what I just said. He views this as a zero-sum competition, and the only way he can be stronger and restore Russia to greatness, at least his vision of it, is by us to be weaker. And 
And so in that competition, everything we're debating here is about the tactics they're using, right? They, they can't compete with us economically. They can't necessarily compete with us militarily in terms of projecting power all over the world. But what they do very intelligently is a low investment in military intervention in exchange for influence in the Middle East. So he's now becoming a power broker in Syria, in Libya, in different parts of the world because he's got enough airplanes and enough troops on the ground to make a difference there. He's even trying to finagle his way somehow into the North Korea talks. He wants to be a player in that. He, uh, you see in Europe, there was an article yesterday about a growing number of European countries uh, under, after new elections, far left and right parties have come to power that are potentially moving those countries closer to, I think he went to the wedding, uh, is it the Austrian uh, uh, prime minister, is that right, or president? Yeah, and, and foreign minister. And, and then of course the asymmetrical means that we're discussing. Uh, which are part of it. Again, to them, it's a very low-cost way of getting into our, um, getting in our, in our, in our heads and in our society, and dividing us against each other. So, in the context of all of that, if we can finally accept the fact that we are in a sort of, I mean, we are really in a great power competition with China, and in some ways, a similar competition with Russia. They're not as big as China. Uh, they don't pose the same economic challenges as China, but nonetheless, enough that we have to address it. If we can just wrap our brains around the fact that we are in a competition and that the one thing we want to do in that competition is what we did in the Cold War, and that is avoid a third world war, then we, have, then we can begin to design what we do. We punish what they've done, but we also try to deter what they've done. It was a key component of the Cold War, as the fact that both parties understood the price was so high for a nuclear exchange that neither party pursued it, despite a couple of close calls. It is why... I, uh, um, along uh, um, with Senator Van Hollen, have put out this idea of laying out ahead of time, specifically, what the penalties would be. What is the price if Putin does this again? And it has to be a high enough price so that he doesn't do it again. And the notion of it is, if you know ahead of time how much it's going to cost you if you do it, you might be less likely to do it. I can't guarantee he won't, but I can guarantee that if he doesn't think the price is high enough, he will. In that realm, do you have any views, either one of you, about the role that deterrence can play in terms of raising, changing the cost-benefit analysis that Vladimir Putin undertakes before he conducts what he did in 2016, again in 2018 or beyond? I agree with uh, the premise of uh, your question and characterizing this as a big power competition. I think deterrence is absolutely critical. And so when the administration has gone after Deripaska and Vexelberg and Putin's son-in-law, I think that sends a very clear message. When we tighten the sectoral sanctions, I think that sends a, a strong message. I think we could do more collectively to look at cyber deterrence. I think there's a growing awareness that we've not done enough in that regard. But I think the, the tools that can be brought to our disposal to increase the message of deterrence, we're supportive of that. There's a lot in the Deter Act that is very positive. It's, it, it moves in the right direction. Um, there's some aspects of it that we're not comfortable with. I mean, the vesting new mandates almost entirely in a single in intelligence official, the DNI, uh, rather than a Senate-confirmed cabinet official, is problematic. Um, as I said earlier, we take the view that national security waivers are very important for diplomacy. Our team is preparing some structured responses to the legislation. We'll be uh, providing in coming days and look forward to engaging with you more, more closely on it. But I, I agree overall with what you've said. Deterrence is, is critical. And I know I'm over time. I just want to comment that as far as the Deter Act is concerned, I, I recognize, at least speaking for myself, I think Senator Van Hollen does as well, that if we want to pass it and turn it into law, there are changes we will need to make because we need the administration to sign it. 
Um, and we want to do it. Our goal is to pass a bill that deters, not to necessarily have the original product become the law per se as long, but it needs to be strong enough. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I have a few other questions. Uh, Secretary Billingsley, let me ask you, expectations, I think, among uh, the Senate was that you would uh, continue to impose sanctions on oligarchs, but clearly you've decided to diminish pressure. You haven't designated any oligarchs since uh, April 6. You have delisted Estonian banks. Now that there are reports that you may delist Rusal, what kind of signal does that send to the Kremlin? We're told to judge the administration by its actions and not by the president's words, but these actions seem to be more aligned with an accommodating and disturbing rhetoric that the president has versus a tougher approach. Senator, <coughs> I, I'm unaware of any intention to quote unquote delist Rasal. If anything, we're pushing forward to see Deripaska completely removed from any ownership or control uh, of both Rasal and Ian Plus um, as, as, a, as a way forward. Um, it, we are far from easing up. We, we continue to accelerate. Uh, yeah, I, if we just look at the cyber sanctions, we've, we've sanctioned Let me interrupt times. you for a moment. Yes, uh, I, I want to focus specifically on oligarchs. On the oligarchs. And in that respect, unless I'm wrong, there has no, been no designation since April 6. And you have delisted Estonian banks. I'm glad to hear you're not delisting Roussel, at least not intending to. But, the, you know, one of the elements, you don't become an oligarch in Russia unless Putin makes you one, right? So at the end of the day, this is his satellite universe of people who support him and maybe even part of his monies at the end of the day. So I hope you'll uh, create a greater focus on that because that's, I think, critical towards our, our goals here. Uh, let me, let me uh, also ask you while I, uh, I'm directing questions to you, the Obama administration imposed sanctions on the FSB and GRU following the 2016 election. How many of those uh, officers' accounts have been frozen, do you know? On the GRU officers, I, I don't have that information could in get, hand. I'll, get, and and we'll FSB officers as well. Yes, sir. And how much money did those individuals lose as a result of any sanctions, if there are any as it relates to them? Uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to take that for the record, okay. sir. Now, uh, Secretary Mitchell, let me, uh, you know, I have a high regard for you. Uh, but it, it gets a little diminished when you uh, do things that I think are political in nature. Um, you mentioned a mighty river uh, comment uh, as it relates to the previous administration. Well, that was 2009. That was before Crimea. That was before the invasion. That was before the Obama administration levied sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Crimea. That was before. Uh, the, uh, you know, when the president ultimately went ahead, and that's why Russia is not part of the G7 today. Uh, it's also when we, when it became aware that uh, Russia was interfering with our elections, that it did pursue sanctions against the GRU and the FSB. Uh, and I could, uh, that's why it made a commitment reaffirming NATO's commitment to extend membership to Georgia. And I could go through a long list. So I'm not sure that that type of comparison that you attempted to make um, is in our collective interest at the end of the day. But I do want to ask you, um, it, it, the president uh, at the Helsinki uh, press conference announced the establishment of a high-level working group to include business and economic leaders from Russia and the United States. I, I, I thought it was our policy to put economic pressure 
on the Kremlin to stop attacking our elections. It's illegal occupation of Ukraine. It's war crimes in Syria. Why are we promoting business ties with a regime that we are actually trying to severely sanction? Of the things that you've said, Senator. Um, well, I only part, have one question, so okay, uh, I'll respond I, to the second. I have thing limited time, so you can respond to my question. Look, um, I think Helsinki. Uh, what what came out of Helsinki, other than an agreement for the two national security councils to meet, was to explore the concept of two things: a business council of some kind, details to be determined, and an academic exchange, a, 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 a track to Dartmouth type thing, like we did during the Cold War. We're assessing right now. What, if anything, would be the composition or way forward on either of these? Uh, well, it's, it's, it just seems counterintuitive that we're trying to affect the Russian economy and then we're trying to create business ties. Let me ask you this. Uh, increasingly, uh, Russia provides a vital source for oil and aviation fuel to North Korea. And there have been reports that at times when China has slowed its exports, Russia has stepped up to fill the breach. So whether it's part of a broader strategy to increase Russian influence in Asia or merely an effect to make mischief and complicate our efforts to deal with and constrain Pyongyang, it's clear that Moscow intends to play a role in North Korea and not one that's helpful. What are your thoughts in this regard on how we best deal with that? I agree with that characterization. Russia is not being helpful in many regards with North Korea. Uh, uh, look, I mean, on one hand, they're part of the United Nations Security Council uh, consensus uh, that's critical for maximum pressure. On the other hand, they appear to be working against many of the measures that they themselves have supported in the National Security Council. What I would say is on an ongoing basis, we're looking very carefully, uh, whether it's Russian behavior on DPRK, Syria, uh, across the board, we're looking on an ongoing basis at all of these things and the authorities at our disposal for responding to it. Mm. And finally, Mr. Billingsley, congratulations. I just got notification that you have been nominated to be the Undersecretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. I look forward to our conversation as it relates to that potential new role. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Um, Thank you both uh, for your testimony today. Uh, we hold lots and lots of hearings here. Uh, very seldom do we get as clear and direct answers as we've got from you. And uh, you uh, are both great representatives of the United States of America. And we, uh, this committee uh, sincerely appreciates your service. On behalf of the American people, thank you for that. Uh, the, uh, th that concludes this hearing. And the record will stay open for questions for the record until 5 p.m. tomorrow evening. With that, the committee is adjourned.